Well, good morning, everybody. Justin's here. That's good. Justin, I got a pair of uh, what my wife calls uh, preppy shorts this last week. They have stripes on them. Yes. Uh, And what we found was that I have nothing to wear them with, so I was disappointed that I couldn't pull off my Justin harness look for the summer. So I'd have to, like, squat a little, but, I mean, still, that would be closer. Love you, man. Love you, man. Yeah, that's what she said, too. She said I could wear tennis shoes with them. So. And no socks with sandals. Yeah, no socks with sandals. That's kind of weird. That's kind of weird. So. <laughs> all right, so I gave you fodder to talk about me all Sunday school. That way you'll stay awake today, so that's good. All right, so today we start a new series uh, in Titus. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to try to find Titus, that would be good. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, it's going to be harder to find Titus, so... Um, so the first question I have on the handout is, where is Titus in the Bible? That may help you. So there's a section called the Old Testament. It's on the left. There's a section called the New Testament. It's on the right. And Titus is toward the very end of the New Testament. So in the New Testament, there's sections. There's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There's the Acts of the Apostles. That's the history. Uh, there's the Pauline epistles. Those are the epistles written by Paul, little letters to different places. And then there's the general epistles. That's the letters written by everybody else. And then there's Revelation. And Titus is at the, the next to last book in the Pauline epistles. It's uh, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, and then Philemon. So 1st uh, Timothy, 2nd Timothy, and Titus on your handout are part of what's called the pastoral epistles. Uh, they are written uh, to church leadership specifically for the purpose of this is how to run a church, this is what a good healthy church looks like. Uh, so I've entitled this series uh, Toward a Healthy Church. Uh, and these are actually the only canonical letters that Paul addressed to individuals. So we don't have a lot of him writing to specific people, so this is kind of special. He only wrote specifically uh, canonical or or Bible letters to two different people, Timothy and Titus. So um, they have a lot in common, actually. So the next question you might have is, where does Titus take place? Uh, Titus takes place on the Mediterranean island of Crete, C-R-E-T-E, Crete. And if you've got the, uh, most of your physical Bibles have a book of the maps right after the book of the index and the book of the glossary and the book of uh, other things. Sometimes there's a harmony or a synopsis of the Gospels in the back, but in the maps you'll see the big picture of the Mediterranean and the island in the middle of the Mediterranean is Crete. Uh, I was looking up how big Crete is, and it's about 100 times the size of Hamilton County. So that kind of gives you an idea of what kind of area. Um, And Titus was sent here to get those churches straightened out. So think about having an assignment to a geographical area the size of a hundred times, hundred times the size of Hamilton County, and you go get those churches straightened out. Good luck with that. Uh, Titus had several hard assignments in the New Testament, and we'll get to those in just a sec. But uh, the Cretes, anybody want to guess who lives on Crete? Cretans, yes. Uh, and Cretans were known for several different things, none of which were positive. Uh, to Cretanize was a euphemism in the first century for to lie. Uh, because they just lied all the time. All the time they lied. Uh, it was just a part of their culture. Um, most of the historians, uh, actually Paul even, in verse 12 of Titus chapter 1, calls them liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So that's what the Holy Spirit thought too. So it was a pretty rough place. Um, and the first time Crete's mentioned uh, in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 2, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes down and... The preacher is preaching, and everybody hears in their own language. Uh, the, the island of Crete is mentioned there. So there are people who heard the gospel at the day of Pentecost who went back to Crete and 
established churches there. So 15, 20 years later, Titus shows up and starts to organize and set things straight. So there had been some period of time where there wasn't a lot of really good leadership in place. So imagine hearing one sermon and going back to your home and let's do church. That could be problematic, right? I think we're going to need a little bit more than just one. So, so this is where Titus kind of kicks in here. Uh, so when was Titus written? Probably around the same time Paul wrote 1 Timothy. The two works are very, very similar. Um, and then the next question is, who was Titus? Well, Paul in Titus chapter 1 calls Titus a, a true son in the faith. And he uses very similar terms for Timothy. So we think that Paul either directly led Titus to the Lord or was some part instrumental in his development, especially in the early years uh, of his Christianship. Uh, it, we first meet Titus in the Bible in Galatians chapter 2. Um, and Paul says there, After 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Now, if you remember, there was this thing called uh, the Jerusalem Council. Uh, happened in Acts either 11 or 12. I can't remember which one. And Paul and the church leaders uh, from outside of Jerusalem come to Jerusalem. And the church leaders at Jerusalem, they have this council. And they need to decide who the gospel is for and what is the gospel. They're going to nail this thing down. They're going to put a bow on top of it, and everybody's going to be in alignment when they leave. And Paul brings Titus as an example of a Greek believer who does not need to be under the law to have the gospel. And the, the physical example that they're talking about here is circumcision uh, in that the Judaizers, the, the Jewish believers, felt that you had to be under certain parts of the law to be a Christian in the New Testament. And Paul shows up with Titus and says, Titus is a Greek and he's a believer. And he's my example of being a believer and not being under the law. Now, think about that for just a second. Here's the first church council, and you're the example for your entire non-Jewish world. You're the example. So I'm guessing that Titus was a pretty good example if Paul brings one guy with him as the example. So this gives us some idea of what Paul thought of Titus. Now, he's mentioned uh, several other different places. He mentions him nine times in the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, Titus actually had the job of going and uh, getting an offering on behalf of Corinth to be made for the poor saints back at Jerusalem. I don't know if you remember reading this in the scriptures. So Paul sent Titus to the, to the Corinthian church, which if you know anything about the Corinthian church, just, yeah, so I saw several eyebrows go up. Yes, that's the Corinthian church. It was heathen. It was all kinds of just really, really base activity going on there inside the church that Paul had to rebuke. Just really awful behavior. So imagine being the guy that goes, and I'm going to go collect an offering in the middle of a bunch of pagan-looking-like Christians. And he did it, and they loved him. So he did it in a way that it worked. So Paul, looking at the entire uh, world at that point, thinking about who should I send to Crete to go help straighten out the Cretan churches. Titus survived in Corinth. I bet he can do Crete too. So away he goes. And that's how we get Titus on the island of Crete. Uh, a couple different things. Uh, Paul uh, talks about Titus in 2 Corinthians 8.23, and he calls him this. He is my partner and fellow worker. Pretty good phrase. Um, and he was a Greek, so we talked about that as well. All right, 
So by the time we actually get to Paul's letter to Titus, uh, Paul has left uh, Crete. They actually were there together for a short time, and Titus is serving in Crete. So next question is, why was Titus written? Well, in almost all of Paul's letters, there is an incredibly practical kind of, here's one fact that the person receiving the letter or the group receiving the letter has to know. And oh, by the way, while I'm writing, I'm going to cover a lot of other stuff too. So it's, you know, here's the one thing and all these other things. And the one thing that, that uh, uh, Titus had to know was that Titus was being summoned back to another city and two guys were going to be replacing him in Crete, um, Artemis or Tychicus. So Paul takes this opportunity to talk about a whole lot of other things, basically what a healthy church looks like. Um, and I've got the outline of the book there, uh, numbers one, two, and three, the church leaders, the church laity, and the church life. I've got to get my alliteration out of the way. I'm done. So we'll leave the alliteration at home now. So we're good. Uh, J. Vernon McGee made a really interesting comment in his commentary. He said, uh, I guess you, that's what you do in commentaries, you comment. Um, I pull out all these little snippets of uh, quotes here and there, so I get the benefit of uh, all these different works without having to read uh, tons and tons and tons of stuff. But he said, uh, in Timothy, you'll remember there's a couple comments that, that Paul makes to Timothy about, uh, take a little wine for your stomach. Because we think Timothy was a bit of a weak kind of physical guy, so he needed some, some physical, medical type advice. Uh, and Paul spends a lot of the time in, in the letters to First and Second Timothy talking about how to build Timothy up and kind of encourage him and strengthen him and don't let anybody look down on you because you're young and, and these types of comments. And there's none of that in Titus. The assumption is almost that Titus has already kind of got all that behind him. We think that he was a significantly more mature believer than actually Timothy was uh, as, as far as being able to take care of himself and just, I've got this and, and let's go. You know, let me loose on this space a hundred times larger than Hamilton County and, and I'll go do this work, which that's kind of cool. So, so we'll spend all of June uh, and almost all of July in Titus. So a couple knowledge objectives. Uh, number one, and these are the things that I want to make sure we cover as we go through this, this book, uh, to know the qualifications for church leaders. So the, the statement I'm about to make in no way, shape, or form should be intended to be starting rumors or to start concern or to start anything other than sometime in the future, our church leadership will look different. Would you agree? Okay, cool. So sometime in the future, our church leadership will look different. There will come a point where we, as a church family, select new leadership for our church, either through retirement or moving or whatever. There will, there will come a point where that occurs. We need to be familiar with what the qualifications are for good church leadership. Does that make sense? We need to be, know, yes, this is, this is what good looks like and this is not what good looks like. So there's qualifications that Paul gives to Titus as far as when you're going to all these different churches, this is what you should be looking for. All right, so that's the things that we're going to be looking at. Number two, to know the expectations for church leaders. So there's the, the front side, kind of what gets you in the door, and then there's the back side, okay, you're in the house, what are you supposed to be doing? Right? So the expectations are the activities they're supposed to be doing. Number three, to understand the expectations for church members. So it's not just about leadership, it's also about membership. So what do, what, what do we mean uh, when we say we're part of a church family? What, what does that look like? Uh, to better understand the authority given to church leaders. Titus talks about these are the types of people that need to be rebuked inside the church. 
And this is how you do that. So that's, that's very important. Um, if you skip that point, then you end up with all kinds of uh, really bad theology and heresy. Uh, I saw a cartoon earlier this week on Facebook, and it said, um, uh, it showed this guy, and he was a, a speaker in front of a church. He said, I think I found this really new theology, this really new theological point. And it said, translation, I've discovered an old heresy. And, and that's kind of how this thing works a lot of the times, is that, oh, this is a really new concept. Uh, no, it's not. This was discussed and debated and put down 1,600 years ago, or 200 years ago, or 50 years ago. But new stuff constantly comes up, and most of it's just repackaged old stuff. Um, I saw a quote a couple months ago. It said, the devil's the best recycler ever known. He just keeps recycling lies. Keeps recycling lies. He recycles the bad parts of our past, wants to bring that up to us again, recycles and recycles and recycles. And I thought, that's, that's pretty good, actually. Um, so number five, to see practical examples to how to live the Christian faith in everyday life. And then the thing I like about Paul is he says, so this is what good looks like, and this is what not good looks like. So how not to live the Christian walk. So all that's the introduction part. So here we come to Titus. So all we're going to look at today is the first four verses. Uh, this is the greeting. Typically in a uh, first century letter, the first word is the author's name, and then the author describes themselves, and then there's a very short to section to who I'm writing to, and the author describes that person. Uh, this is Paul's next to longest greeting. Uh, Romans is the only longer one. And the thing I want you to think about today is how do you describe yourself? Who do you see yourself as? Because when I, when I am asked, uh, and I was asked this, this past week, uh, I facilitated a meeting at work, and it was a negotiation-type meeting where we had to find certain things, and it was dependent upon each person that came to the meeting to kind of show their cards and really be a little more transparent than they were probably used to. And I've taught for a very long time, and I am extremely comfortable with a long pause after a question. <laughs> and there was more than one of those comments made during the meeting. But someone who was in the meeting asked me afterward, how did you get comfortable with that long pause? She said, because most people, most people are not comfortable with that. I said, well, I've, I've taught for a very long time, and I'm just... Just okay with asking questions and just letting it hang out there. People need, a, you know, in between five to ten seconds to really think through an answer, especially if it's any type of a internalizing question. Um, so the question I want you to think about today is, who am I? If somebody asks you to describe yourself, what does that look like? And when somebody asks me to describe myself, I typically talk about my hometown, my education, my smoking hot wife, my kids, uh, my extended family, what I do, the jobs I've had, the different things that I've done, stuff that I do at church, or maybe things that I'm involved in with the community. That's, that's kind of what I think about who I am. And Paul didn't talk about any of that stuff. Paul talks about who he is in the context of who God has made him. And it's completely different. And, and really, honestly, I, I didn't, I've been reading Titus every day for you know, two or three months now, kind of getting ready for this series. And this, this greeting, I've just kind of 
breeze past and breeze past and breeze past. And this last couple of weeks, I've read it a lot of times. And this idea of I'm defined not by what I have done, but I'm defined by what God has done and where I fit in that. Uh, so as we read through these first four verses, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Now, those of you that have not been with us on a word-by-word uh, -word study through a book, just full disclaimer, this is exceedingly annoying the way I read the Scripture and the way we do this. So I will read two or three words, and we will stop, and we will talk about it. And I will read two or three words, and I will stop, and we will talk about it. So it's going to feel like there is a hitch in this giddy-up. Yes, that is exactly the case. So away we go. Paul. Uh, Paul means small or little. You, you thought I was lying with that, didn't you? Yeah. You're like, no, we're going to stop at almost every single word and, and talk about them. Paul means small or little. Uh, a bond servant. Uh, this is the word for people who were born into slavery. He's going to talk about uh, salvation here in just a second. Um, and, and I think it's interesting that in a second he's going to talk about his apostleship and what that means in, in relationship to truth and godliness and all these other things. But the first thing that he lists is a bond servant. And he's about to talk to Titus about leadership positions, about what does leadership look like in a church. And I, I like the fact that uh, Phillips in his commentary says, only a man who has learned to obey is fit to command. And this idea that you have to know how to be under authority, you have to know how to take an order, you have to know how to be okay with not being the guy. You have to know that before you can lead. So a bondservant of God, and this is the, the only time that Paul uses the, the phrase a bondservant of God. In all the other letters, he says a slave of Jesus Christ. And a lot of the commentators feel like he's, he's kind of looking backward toward the Old Testament because there were several big saints in the Old Testament that said they were servants of God. They were servants of God. They were servants of God. So this is a look back to the Old Testament. And an apostle of Jesus Christ. And an apostle is just a fancy word for somebody that's sent. And the qualifications were that you had to have seen the risen Christ. So when you see these folks today saying, you see these billboards, I see these billboards going to work. Uh, now speaking at so-and-so, apostle, da-da-da-da-da. I'm like, really? That's kind of cool. Because I didn't know Jesus came back and showed up again so that you could lay eyes on him. Because that's the only way you get to call yourself an apostle. So, challenge. Uh, I should have brought the flag today. I should have brought the flag. Yes. Uh, I bought a challenge flag online a couple months ago. It's awesome. We have fight night at my house, and we'll throw the challenge flag out every once in a while. Somebody tells a story. So it says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. And this is just the way that Paul talks about saved people, the, the elect, the, the chosen, the picked out, the selected. Uh, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. So those of you who have your Bibles open... Uh, what does that phrase say in your, in your translation? The acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Is there another word for accords? Which what? Leads. Leads. Very good. Accords is a... I don't use the word accords. Uh, maybe it's talking about what Zach does when he's changing between them, maybe? Accords? That's, that's, that was bad. Sorry. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it leads to godliness. So that this idea that there is truth, and then there is godliness. I think we talked about this either last week or a couple weeks ago, this idea that there is nothing in my bank account as a pagan. It is empty. There is nothing, there's no righteousness that I, that I can do. When I get saved, Jesus Christ accounts righteousness and puts it in my bank account. Now I have righteousness. Now I can go do godly works. So the truth always comes before godliness. Um, John Calvin in his commentary says the, uh, 
Uh, oops, I'm getting ahead of myself. Not that quote yet. Uh, the truth which accords with godliness. Uh, MacArthur says we cannot be godly if we do not know what God is like and what He expects of those who belong to Him. So there's this idea that this truth is important. Uh, verse number two, in hope or expectation or confidence of eternal life, which God who cannot lie. Now, how did I describe the Christians? Describe the Christians uh, earlier. They were liars. They were really, really, really bad liars. Now, they worshipped several different gods on Crete, and Zeus was one of them. So does anybody know anything about Greek mythology and Zeus in particular? Yeah? Did Zeus ever lie? Oh, yeah. He lied about something very specific that we will not go into detail in here because it is, I don't know whether it's NC-17 or X, um, but I remember reading mythology as a high school student and thinking, Mama is not going to be okay with me reading this. So <laughs> this, is, this is not appropriate. I, I, know, I know that. Uh, but he lied about a whole lot of different things. So when, when Paul says, your God, Titus, doesn't lie, this is a direct affront to Zeus and the lying Zeus and the culture of the Cretans that just has this lying embedded in it. So all these little things are uh, they're connected here. So the God who, who does not lie. <clears throat> in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie... Oh, here's the quote. John Calvin, the only foundation of all true religion is the unchangeable truth of God. Which, if we don't have the unchangeable truth of God, then we have a problem. And we're tossed about constantly. Who God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. What does your translation say there? There's a lot of different ways to translate this. Because there's no word for uh, eternal in Greek. I learned that this week. I thought that was kind of odd. So they come up with these creative ways to say, uh, outside of time or beyond time or before time or strange things. What's your translation say? Before the ages began. Anybody else? Before worldly times. Before worldly times, yes. Anybody else? Long ages ago. The idea is uh, not yesterday. Okay? The idea is a very, very long time ago. Before time began, uh, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching. So has, has in due time. And this is a different word than the time in Titus 1-2. This is an opportune time. You've probably heard Gary talk about the different Greek words for time. This is the one that, here's the opportunity. Here's the, the perfect time to do this thing or to say these words. And this is where God inserted Jesus Christ into history. But in due time manifested or appeared. Um, the idea is that that there was a shadow of this thing for a very, very, very long time. But at some point, and, and, and in shadows, you kind of hope that you've got a little light source. And those of you with uh, the Bible on your phones are going, ha, I'm still winning, this is good. Um, but in dark times, a little bit of light goes a long ways, right? So in the Old Testament, there's these little bits of light that are, that are shining forward, and you kind of get this idea that, there's a, there's, thank you, that was great. There's a Messiah coming way down there, but I can't, I just, I just can't make it out. I don't know exactly. And this time is the perfect time for God to come along and scare the devil out of some shepherds on the side of a hill and show up with these angel choirs just screaming at them, <laughs> which... I would have a hard time with that too, quite frankly. Uh, they would have had to say, don't be afraid, a lot more than I think they said it 
to those poor guys. Uh, but so he shows up in the manifestation of his word. Um, and then specifically here in this passage, through preaching or this proclamation. Uh, now, I want you to think about your service to God. So what is your, let's talk for a second. So what does your service to God look like? If somebody, if somebody watched you serve, what is it that you do to serve? So somebody talk to me. What is it that you do to serve? I drink water on Sunday mornings. That's what I do to serve. Thank you. You teach the three-year-old. That is visible. Somebody can see that, right? Thank you for teaching the three-year-old puggles. I think there's like three crowns in heaven for that. Cool. I heard somebody else. Five. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with five. I vote for five. Do nursery with two-year-olds. God bless Abby. Right? Pre-K elevate. What else? Grade school elevate. What else? Work with the youth group. What else? Widows ministry. What else? Greet and take care of the pastors. Dave does something kind of cool. Uh, most of you notice that the uh, when the pastors walk up on stage, they've got a water bottle with them. Right? They don't carry that in the building with them. We have some, at, and I learned this a couple weeks ago, and I was just I was blown away at this one. Dave's got some that are chilled and some that are room temperature, because some of the speakers like chilled water, and some like room temperature water. Yeah, I was like, that's, that's just impressive. That was impressive. Yeah, and that was my second thought was that, really, that's kind of picky too. So, yeah. What else? What else, what else is your service? Sometimes it's like taking care of a three-year-old. Yeah. That was funny. That was funny. Yeah, we're, we're keeping that one. We're keeping that one. So what else does your service look like? What's that? Prep for Sunday school. Absolutely. You guys are sitting in seats, right? Justin and uh, actually Terry Bolden and his crew come in and set all that stuff up. That's great. Very helpful. Miss um, Carrie, what, do you, what does your service look like? What does your service look like when every head is bowed and every eye is closed? On those special days where the water is stirred. Yeah, need someone to pray with them or somebody who's getting baptized that day. Yes, so uh, it may or may not be obvious to you, but when people get baptized here at Stewart Heights, uh, we have folks that go up into the baptistry and help them. Here's the gown that you need to get into. Here's the towels. Here's the, the, the everything that you need to kind of pull that off because you have church clothes on and then you don't and you get wet and then you put your church clothes back on again. And there's some real tactical steps to that <laughs> to make sure that things go like they should and that you don't have problems in the baptistry. Okay? We've had problems in the baptistry before, and we uh, changed the material that the baptismal gowns are made out of because we've had problems in the baptistry before. So uh, I digress. Uh, on the guy's side, <clears throat> the pastor needs help getting into those waiters. And believe it or not, that is not a one-man job. Sometimes it is like a two or three man job. So you got to help get in. So there's just that real tactical service looking stuff that happens all over. So my question to you is what was Paul's service? What did Paul do? 
spread the gospel. How did he, he spread the gospel? He preached, right? And this is what he's talking about here. Manifested, manifested his word through preaching. This idea that there is truth that leads to godliness that results in service. So salvation inspires service. That's your next blank. That was a long setup for that blank, wasn't it? It's okay. This preaching, which was committed or believed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now, did he say Jesus our Savior? Nope. God our Savior? Did Paul make a mistake? It's not Bill Brandenburg impression. You've got to cock your head sideways and your voice goes up at the end. Um, that's how he asked the question. It's hilarious. That's how you know he's, he's tricking you into trying to say something that is not true. No, he didn't make a mistake here. God our Savior. Uh, there's an element in which Jesus Christ, who died for us on the cross, saved us, right? But there's an, also an element where God, who orchestrated that plan and injected his son into it, participated in that saving us, right? Does this make sense? There's also an element where the Holy Spirit, who comes along after it's done, and covers us and seals us up, keeps us saved. They are all our Savior. We just most often call Jesus our Savior because it shows up in the Bible that way the most often. But they're all part of the salvific, that's a fun word, the salvific work uh, that saves us. So, <clears throat> so Paul saw his identity embedded in what God had done, not in what Paul had done. So I ask the question again, who am I? Because I am not the father of some really awesome kids, right? I am not a new husband who is leading his family with integrity. I am not a wife who prays for her family in a beautiful way. I am not the wife of an airline pilot, right? We are far more than those things because of what God has done for us, not because of what we do or the classes that we took or the degree that we got or somebody turned the tassel over here, well, now I'm this. No, I'm, I'm a God's elect, right? I'm, I'm his child. I'm, I'm a servant of God. I'm empowered to be godly. I have hope of eternal life. I get to engage in the manifestation of his word through teaching. This is who we are. Is, who we are is not what we have done. Who we are is who God has made us. Does this make sense? This is my big point for the day. So that is how Paul described himself in the greeting. Now, remember I told you there's two parts to a greeting. There's the person writing and the person being written to. So when we write letters, we start with the person write, written to, and then we tell them what we want to tell them. Back in the day... They talked about themselves first, just so you established identity, because this didn't come from Paul at theapostles.org, right? This was, that would be a cool email address, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> this came from uh, a guy's hands, and he put it into his hands, and he had, had to show some proof of authorship, and so Paul would talk about himself. So, verse 4, to Titos, that's his name in the Greek. So we've been pronouncing it wrong this whole time, but I am not about to use that pronunciation for the rest of this series. So, Titus. 
I told Julie that, and she's like, you can't say that in Sunday school. I said, okay, we'll leave that alone. Uh, a true or legitimate or genuine uh, son or child. Please stand by. I got too excited. There we go. I have found that I can no longer look down and then look immediately up. I'll get a little dizzy. So I think it has something to do with my eyesight changing over time. We are going to edit that out of the podcast, though. You can count on that. <laughs> to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Our common. This is not... Uh, so my mom, when I was growing up, when she would see somebody uh, that was uh, unnecessarily dirty or vulgar for a reason that she didn't feel was appropriate, she would sometimes use the phrase, that's just common. right? And, and I didn't... I, I couldn't find her definition in the dictionary anywhere, but I quickly came to understand that it was, this is low. This is, this is not the way we behave. And this is not the way this word is described here. This is the, it's common, it's shared. It's something that we all participate in. And the thing I love about this is that Paul here is very indirectly saying that the gospel is for everyone because he uses this same terminology talking to, to Timothy. And Timothy was a Jew and Titus is a Greek. So my son in the faith, Timothy, who's a Jew, and my son in the faith, faith Titus, who's a, a Greek, we're good. We have this common shared faith. This is for all of us. This is beautiful. And he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if you're paying attention in the English, after the word Savior occurs the very first one of these in the book of Titus. A period. Four verses, one sentence. 67 semicolons, four colons, 17... No, no, there weren't 67. This this is ridiculously complex. If you think it's complex in the English, it's ridiculously complex in the Greek. Albert and I were texting earlier this week, and Albert said that may be why Peter said some of Paul's stuff is hard to understand. Yeah, I think so. I don't use multiple semicolons and colons in one sentence. All one big long sentence to say, I'm Paul, I'm writing to Titus, we're about to have some fun. So, what's the point? Number one, truth is the foundation for our religion and our relationship with God. Number two, godliness is a natural outpouring of a right relationship with God. If you have a right relationship with God, godliness is going to be an output of that. It looks like the fruits of the Spirit. That's what this looks like. And number three, identity is intricately connected with a relationship with God. Identity. Who I am is who God has made me to be. So what do we do with that? Well, if truth is the foundation, we've got to know the truth. And if godliness is a natural outpouring, then we better be living out the truth. And if identity is intricately connected, then we need to be talking about the truth. So talk about the truth. And the truth is, when somebody says, well, who are you, Jim? I'm the son of God. I've been saved. It's pretty cool. Want to know about that? It's neat stuff. So... Uh, as I said last week, uh, I've got several resources. Uh, I've got three left. Uh, commentaries, and if you would like one, I'd be happy to give you one. There's three conditions. You've got to read the text of Scripture that's associated with next week's lesson. You've got to read the portion of your resource that co- corresponds with uh, the weekly lesson. And these range in length from... Um, Darla, I'm going to steal MacArthur here for a sec. Is that okay? So John MacArthur's commentary on Titus is that big. His is 15 times larger than anybody else's because he needed to make it into a hardback book. So um, I don't know why. 
McGee's is probably 20 pages, and the pages are this big, and the font's like size 18, right? It's really not a lot going on. Ironside, uh, his, Ironside was the first, I always buy his, because his was the first commentary they ever read on the book of Nehemiah. Ironside is like seven pages long, so we're going to spend nine weeks in Titus. It's about a little less than a page each week. So some of these are very, very short. So if you're thinking that a commentary has to be, oh, I've got to read like 100 pages, uh, no. Like somewhere between a half a page and three pages a week. So that's the idea here. So if you want one of these, you can come up afterward and get one.